Joe wrote a poem for this week. Actually, uh, now it's dated the 7th. So he wrote it this week, this last week. Christ's last days. Christ's cross was not the first raised on that cold, cold, dark hill, but it would be the only one raised by God the Father's will. Christ prayed the cup may pass as he did kneel, and in his mind he wondered just how the cross would feel. As he walked with his cross, he stumbled and fell, yet he continued his walk up that hill. Christ died on the cross and was placed in a borrowed grave. He didn't stay there long, for he had a world to save. Now as we watch and wait for Christ to call his own, on that day we celebrate, for we will be going home. That's, uh, isn't that just beautiful? Really beautiful. In about 1948, the war, uh, the war that some said was the war to end all wars, um, was over. It had been over a couple of years. And um, um, uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower uh, decided to want to play a little golf. So he joins uh, Augusta National Golf Club in 1948. Now, that's interesting. His, uh, his soldier's pension must have been fairly healthy. Uh, boy, if he tried to join that place now, I think it would be kind of ridiculous if they would let anybody in. But So he joins Augusta National. And in 1956, he goes to the club's leadership. Now, can you imagine? This is the president. Would he have been president in 56? Help me with my chronology here. Now, would he? I think he was a sitting president. So he, he was going to, what I was thinking, Sally, he was going to leverage that a little bit. So he goes to the, to the board of Augusta National. Now, by the way, can you tell the Masters is on my brain? Well, I was fin- finishing prepping this morning. I got the computer open to the leaderboard. Just kind of say, okay. um, In 1956, while he's a sitting president, it sounds like, he uh, calls, he, he, he calls uh, the, the governing board of the masters. He asks if he can come and petition them. I guess they're not going to say no to the president, right? So he goes to them and uh, asks. He's having trouble on hole 17. There's a tree in the middle of the fairway about 200 yards out. And he hits it about every time. In fact, he kind of aims for it. So he asks the leadership of Augusta National to remove the tree. Now, do you know the result of this? It's now called the Eisenhower tree. They said, uh-uh. They said, no, we're not taking that tree out of there. And it's kind of been fabled until this year. Uh, after an awful ice storm... In, um, in that area of Georgia, they finally had to cut the tree down. And there's no, there's no Eisenhower tree on 17 anymore. Um, so that's kind of the story. That's the, the historic part of kind of this year's tournament. Some, some more history to be made, I guess, again today. Well, I began to think about that. I began to think about um, how, um, what, what led me to think about that, besides just the Masters being finished today. Uh, after a storm, or certainly after an ice storm, if you're like me, you've got branches to pick up, right? Uh, maybe all over the property. Um, or after maybe a, a violent spring storm like we sometimes have. Maybe that's going to require a saw or a chainsaw and uh, all that kind of stuff. Well, I think sometimes when we think about, um, when we think about a branch, and the, and the Bible's going to teach us about a righteous branch today. When we think about a branch, we think about a, the mental image of a tree limb that's fallen in the yard during a windstorm or, you know, a fallen branch. 
maybe you think of a, uh, a bank uh, in some suburban area, maybe. There's a, there's a division of or a, a separate building, and that's a branch of the bank, right? Or maybe you think of, um, uh, maybe you think of a, a, a subfield of a major field of study, like, like uh, physics is a, is a branch of the study of science, right? But what the Bible is talking about is really none of those things when it presents this biblical concept in the Old Testament uh, of the Messiah, the coming Messiah, as the branch, the righteous branch. The concept is more along the lines of new growth, okay? A fresh, green manifestation of life. Uh, it's the idea of the new sprouting out of the old. Now, the, the, my, my favorite place for this, I want you to go with me, is Isaiah 6. Now, at the beginning of Isaiah 6, we get this beautiful picture. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, right? Um, high and lifted up on the, on, in the year that King Uzziah died. But by the time we get to verse 13, he is talking a little bit about the righteous branch. Now, if somebody's going to Isaiah, would you get 613? And I also want, want you to scoot back a page or so and read 4-2. So 4.2 and 6.13 from Isaiah. And then somebody else, since we're already kind of over in Zechariah in a little bit, if you'd read Zechariah 3.8. So who wants to be our Isaiah scholar today? Steve, would you do it? And then somebody else find uh, Zechariah 3.8. And in these three places and in others, including Jeremiah, where we'll be, there's a discussion of the righteous branch. Okay. Um, who's, uh, Steve, read Isaiah 4.2 and then 6.13. That's all right. Okay, it's about the nation. All right. Now, 6.13. The idea there that, that Isaiah presents, I want you to think about this, is a stump that is beginning to sprout. What does a stump usually mean? The Eisenhower tree has been cut down, right? But there's growth from the stump. Isn't that interesting? Okay, let's, another idea then comes from Zechariah. Uh, who, who went and got uh, Zechariah 3, uh, what did I tell you, 3, 8? Okay. Okay, so we get this picture here that in several places in the Old Testament, the Messiah is called the branch. Now, we're going to talk about the branch today. Now, let's go to our text, which is in Isaiah 23, our first text. We're going to read verse 5 and 6. Uh, uh, Bob, can I prevail on you to read that for us? Now, yes, sir, Jeremiah, I don't know what I said, but Jeremiah 23, verse 5 and 6. Okay, now, uh, what I want us to catch here 
is when the Bible predicts something or, or in these prophetic portions of Scripture, it's not like one writer reads another writer and says, oh, he used this idea of the branch. I think I'll pick up on that. Ellie, I knew you were going there. Okay. Oh, no. no. Ellie's usually good to push back at me a little bit about these kind of things. But it's not like they just kind of, Reading each other's work, for instance, Zechariah would have had access probably to Isaiah. It, it, it's not that he just kind of picked up on that idea and thought, oh, I'll just throw the branch in my writing too. This was, this was a, it's a wonderful harmonizing of a metaphor here that's used for the Messiah. Now, we need to be sure we kind of understand it. Look at verse 5 uh, from where uh, uh, Jeremiah is writing here in 23 and before Bob read Jeremiah 23, 5. Now, what you've got to understand is if you read the book of Jeremiah and certainly the book of Lamentations in your devotional time, uh, many times you're going to want to take Prozac when you're done. It's kind of depressing. He was called what? Do you remember? The weeping prophet. His, his was a tough day and a tough job and a tough day. Uh, they treated him terribly. But it's interesting, in chapter 23 and other places like in chapter 32, there are, he gets glimmers of hope, messianic hope. And this is one of those places where he's really, really hopeful for the things to come. Now, regarding the branch, if you look at verse 5, I'm going to parse it a little bit for you. Okay, It says that he will be raised by God. The branch will be raised by God. In other words, that the branch, whoever this is going to be, will be given by God himself. Now, I want us to kind of walk down the, uh, the path of whether or not uh, this is talking about David. I want you to think about that for a minute. Because, you know, David and his lineage are part of all this stuff we've been studying. But it said he, this branch is given by God himself. Okay, second, it says he will be for David. You catch that? He will be for David, a righteous branch. Now, that tells me it's not about David, right? It's about somebody being given to David or giving given for David. It's, it's uh, someone who is coming after David. Uh, it's that promised one who will establish the eternal kingdom that we've been talking about, who will build the eternal temple. Okay, So uh, he will be for David. I kind of like the wording here. Clearly, it's not David himself um, because he's given for David. Third, he will be righteous. Now, my question is, was David always righteous? No. No. Um, whoever this one who is is coming, he's going to be righteous in terms of he'll have clean heart, a clean motive. His conduct will be above reproach. Years ago, a great world leader, now exiled because... Of, um, of, a, of, of a political battle begins to study the Bible and in particular has a particular interest in the Gospels and he begins to study the life of Christ and he comes through his study proclaiming this is the crystal Christ. Literally, Napoleon said, the more I study about him, the better he gets. Isn't that interesting? A great leader studies the greatest of leaders and says, the more I get to know him, the better he gets. Who else can you say that about besides my wife? And it's okay for you to report that, okay? All right, 
The more you get to know him, the better he gets. He's righteous in conduct and heart. Number four, he will be a wise king and prosperous, it says here. And he will bring, number five, justice to bear. Always deciding, always leading, always making a just and right decision. Okay. Now, that sounds like the kind of leader I want to follow. How about you? So in verse 6, he's going to talk a little bit here, I think, about both the person of the branch and the time of the branch's arrival. Okay? And both of those are important. The person and the time of the branch are both important. In the right time, which was for them a time of crisis, and, and certainly in Jeremiah's day it was a time of crisis, but he's looking forward to another day of crisis that you and I know um, uh, came when Jesus came to the earth. In fact, Paul says in Galatians, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. So it's at the right time, the right leader comes to the fore. Uh, at a time of crisis to rescue Israel, it says here in verse 6, a righteous leader comes at the right time. Now, my question is, could it get any better than that? A righteous, purely motivated Pure acting, just leader comes at the right time in history. I don't think it could be any better than that. You know, you could argue, well, what if, what if he's a really, really good leader? What if he's really good and righteous? But, you know, things are pretty good right now. We don't need all that much leadership right now. Or, what if the time is terrible and we need a deliverer? We need a savior. We need a, a, a redeemer. But there's no one fitting to be found well this prediction says at the right time the right one will come and we kind of believe we know who that is now what i want you to do is turn now to the right in your scriptures okay if you remember last week we found zechariah two books back from matthew okay zechariah we're going to go to six and we're going to read some more about the branch king. Now, interestingly, Zechariah's writing is dated for us. I think this is interesting. This was written, or this vision, this series of night visions were given to him beginning on February 15th, 519 B.C. You don't think the Bible's specific enough for you? Uh, it gives the month and the day. February 15th, 519 Jeremiah has been, uh, uh, Zechariah, I'm sorry, has been back in the nation since about 538. Um, I'm sorry, no, he's been back. He's been back about 16, 17 years, coming back from exile uh, in Babylon. And the, the, the temple itself that he's going to motivate uh, in, through his preaching and prophecy to be rebuilt will be finished by 515. So this is just before that, okay? Uh, so in, this is in 519, he's going to give this piece of vision about the righteous branch. Now, would somebody read? We're going to start with verse 9. Now, there's some names in here that are a little tricky, so if you don't want to say them, you don't have to, okay? Just say this guy and that guy or whatever, okay? All right, somebody start in verse 9 and read down through 15.
this is what the Lord Almighty says. Here is the man whose name is the prince, and he will branch out from this place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be on his throne. And he will be a priest on his throne. And there will be harmony between the two. The crown will be given to Hodiah, Hosea, Jedediah, and Ken, son of Zephaniah, as a memorial in the temple of the Lord. Those who are far away will come and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. This will happen if you diligently obey the Lord your God. By the way, would you give John a hand for doing <laughs> You made, through, you made it through that really, really well. I'm not sure I could have done that well. It, it was really good. Now, they're calling some men that John appropriately read about. And they're, what God is saying to them is, I want you to build a crown. Now, it's interesting. If you compare verse 9 to verse 10, in some translations, the word crown is plural. So we don't know if they were talking about three crowns, one for each of these guys, or if we're talking about one crown. But... But for the sake of argument for right now, we'll say these men are to make crowns, plural, okay? And they're to place them, not all at the same time, maybe if there are more than one, they're just to place them one at a time, on the head of whom? Joshua. Joshua. Okay, now this isn't Joshua, son of Nun, who was the guy uh, who was Moses' uh, protege. But this is Joshua. What is Joshua's role in, in the country at this time? This Joshua. Can you? Can you pick up on that? He's the high priest. That's really important. Do high priests wear crowns? No. Seems kind of ridiculous then, right? That they call, and by the way, the guy, um, uh, the guy that is making the crowns is Josiah, uh, probably a metalsmith or a jeweler, and they say, make these crowns. Now, I read this week about, uh, in 1907, King Edward VII of England called on the Royal Asher Diamond Company in Amsterdam to cut and polish the famed Kulinen Diamond. All right. That procedure was necessary to make the resulting smaller stones suitable for inclusion in Great Britain's crown jewels. This rock was 3,106 carats. Okay. I ought, to, I ought to do a little poll in here and see who's got the biggest rock in here, but I probably better not do that, had I? It won't be mine, I guarantee you. You know, mine are every start, third stone a diamond chip, you know, kind of thing. But, yeah. Uh, okay, now, by the way, in, in, uh, in, in jeweler's language here, that's a pound six ounces. That's a big rock. Okay? Um, uh, it was the largest diamond discovered up to that time in 1907. Joseph Asher gathers an audience. Now, who would want to do this? He gathers an audience to watch him cut this stone, and the tools that he was using initially broke because the diamond was so hard. He eventually gets it done, and these stones then now cut and polished become part of the crown jewels in England, and I suppose they still are today. What, what, did, they ask, what did they ask Josiah to do? Make a crown or crowns. When they do that, they're going to give them to these elders, which, by the way, some of these names that John read may be more clan names or, or almost positions than specific men's names. And they say, we want you to place that 
crown on the head of the high priest. Now, this is highly symbolic. The high priest doesn't wear a crown. High priest wears an ephod or ephod. Who wears a crown? Well, frankly, nobody right now. Zerubbabel was in the line of David. And by the way, Zerubbabel was not a whole lot of terubbable. He did what he was supposed to do. <laughs> Couldn't resist, sorry. I think about that every time I think of his name. Zerubbabel didn't get them in a lot of terubbabel. He did what he was supposed to do. Okay, now Zerubbabel was the governor, but he was in the line of David. He could have been king, but he wasn't. They didn't, they didn't seat a king in those days. So literally, placing the crown on uh, Joshua, the high priest's head, gives him kind of a similar footing with Zerubbabel. And together, they're going to rebuild the temple, uh, and they'll finish it in 515. Uh, I, I find this kind of intriguing, though, that, um, that they do this. And what I want you to catch here is this is not just about making Joshua, giving him the, uh, the political stroke to get done what he needs to get done. This act is pointing to the coming Messiah. Okay, and we'll, we'll get into that in just a minute. Now, the crown is in preparation, as I just said, for the branch from Isaiah and Jeremiah. And, and literally, I love the way Zechariah kind of says it here, the branch will branch out. Did you catch that as, as John was reading a little bit ago? The branch will branch out. He's active. Now, in verse 12, there is a phrase that we can't miss. It is incredibly important. Look at the last phrase, I think it is, in verse 12. It should be in your Bible. Okay? We're in Zechariah 6, 12. All right? It actually isn't the last in mine, but he's going to say, Behold, there's a man, behold a man, who is the branch, or whose name is branch. Now, how does your Bible say it? Here's the man. Okay, hang on to that thought. We're going to look at a couple other places in the scriptures where it says, here's the man. All right? Now, here's the man. Yeah, exactly. You the man. That's, that's the deal. Okay? All right, now, this new arrangement will have three distinctives. Let's talk about them for a minute, okay? Would somebody, before we get there, go to Psalm 9, verse 7? Psalm 9, 7. Thank you. And I need somebody else to go to Hebrews 7, and we're going to read 14 down through 17. Thank you, Steve. Okay, now, there's a distinctive of this new arrangement, Okay? Whoever this is going to be, this branch king, will be clothed with majesty. And the language that's used here is reserved only for talk about God. In places like Psalm 104, he is robed in righteousness or clothed in majesty. That's talk about God himself. What I want to point your mind to for just a moment is what John says in the first chapter of John, kind of his preamble when he says, and we beheld his glory, the glory of, as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Another idea here. The glory of God is on, robed in Jesus. Okay? Robed, so he's clothed or robed with majesty. Second, this temple that's coming is going to have a throne room. 
Now that's interesting because the temple of Solomon didn't have a throne room. Solomon had a palace, right? The temple of Zerubbabel didn't have a throne room. That would have been far too much Zerubbabel. Okay, no, no. It just no need for a throne room, right? This is not talking about those temples. Who's got Psalm 9 7? There is a throne of judgment. It's going to be in this new temple, and that's another symbolic issue. Okay, now, so the temple's going to have a throne room, and the king, and here's what ties us together. Here's why Joshua has a crown set on his head, and then they take it back and display it for memorial. And here's why the temple is going to have a throne room, because this new king will also, excuse me, also be a priest. Now, Steve, read to us a little bit about the line that Jesus comes to from Judah, not from Levi, and Melchizedek from uh, Hebrews 7. Uh, start, let's start at uh, 14 and read down through 17. Okay, now, the connection that the Hebrews writer is trying to make is that when the Messiah comes, he will be a priest, but not from the line of Levi, like Moses and Aaron were, and all the other priests. This priest will be from the line of Judah. In fact, he'll be the lion from the tribe of Judah. So, what you and I need to think about in this moment, and this creates great hope for them, is that these two offices are combined in this uh, Judah tribe priest. And what I want you to know is that your king is also your priest. Your priest is also the king. Never happened before. Never going to happen again. Your king is also your priest. You could argue, and this has been said of him in in places in Scripture and in other places in history, you could argue because he came preaching, he is also prophet, prophet and priest and king. You've heard that in an old gospel hymn, haven't you? Crown him, crown him, prophet and priest and king. Okay, yeah, okay, all right. Your king... Is a priest. What do priests do? They hear prayers. They make a difference in your life. Your priest is not cloistered somewhere unempowered. Your priest is also the king. The king of the ages. That's the branch king that's being talked about here. Now, okay, the crown, then, once it's placed on Joshua, he says, I want you to take it and display it in the temple. So they do that, uh, the temple of Zerubbabel. And the crown is to be displayed there as a memorial. When they see that crown there, and remember now, he's, he's gone tribe to tribe and said, uh, I need some silver and gold from you guys because I'm making a crown. 
He places it there as a memorial. There's one, one memorial is memorial that he's giving is every time they see it, they're going to remember, you know what? The reason we've got a temple to worship in is because God brought us back here. But the second thing they're going to notice when they see it is this is something different. There's no king on the throne, but there's a king coming who also will be the branch. Now, verse 15, who are those that are far away? Uh, let, me, let me read that verse to you again. Um, this is 6.15. Those who are far off will come and build the temple of the Lord. Now, the truth is there are those who came from exile to build, and some came from other places to help them build. But I think it goes further than that. Those are returning exiles, but they're also talking about the Gentiles. And I, I want to make a connection here to Marty's message last week. Would you turn with me uh, to uh, Acts 10, which is where we were in the sermon last week, talking about Cornelius. You remember that? I thought last week's talk was just really inspiring to me about being inclusive. Now, I, I, caught, an, I caught something, though, here as we were reading, as, we were, as, as Marty was leading us through that study last week. I want you to look at verse 1 and 2. Truly, truly, I say to you, sorry, you know what? I've got to get an axe. <laughs> now, there's a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion, what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man. Listen to the description of it description of him, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. How is he described? A really good guy. A generous guy. I think Marty made that point last week, right? Who's he giving to? Giving to the Jewish people. You know what I find just incredible here? The Jewish people accepted his gifts. They actually would commend him for his generosity. He was commended, but still excluded. That kind of turns my stomach, does it yours? He was commended, yet excluded. Hey, he's a really good guy, but no, he can't come to church with us. You know, he gives a lot to the to the people of God. Uh, we love old Cornelius. What, now, do you save a spot for him at church to sit by you? Uh, no, he can't really come to our church. He was, his gifts were accepted. And he was lauded for that. He was commended for that. But he was excluded from the family of faith. What the branch king is going to make sure that happens is that those are from, who are from far away, far from God, will be included in this new kingdom. Now, one more place. Let's go to John 19. You're not going to believe this connection. The scene is Christ's trial before Pilate. We're going to fast forward 550 years from Zechariah. Look at the first three verses of 19. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him. You know what that means? If not, look it up. It's terrible. He was almost dead by the time he gets there. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and give him slaps in the face. Now, Jesus here also receives a crown. Think of the description of that crown. This is not sandburrs in this thing. This is two-inch acacia bush thorns. And they don't just kind of uh, 
place it on his head. They jam it on his head into his, the skin of his scalp. After, by the way, he's already been beaten to within an inch of his life. Then they place on him a robe, a seamless robe. It's interesting. Uh, go with me just back real quickly to Luke 23. Look at the description of the robe in Luke 23. Pilate is making fun of this thing, but he's being prophetic in doing so. Look at 23.11. And Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in, my Bible says, a gorgeous robe. What does yours say? Elegant. Gorgeous. Uh, Your mind needs to go there to expensive. They've kind of made a, a full view of the mockery here. They're having fun, but it's serious fun. And they're mocking Jesus and the Jews at the same time. So Pilate, by the time we get to verse 4, has done all these things, and he robes Jesus in this beautiful robe, now bloodied and beaten. And in verse 4, He says, Pilate comes out again and says to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Where have you heard that before? It's the branch king, guys. Behold the man. You know, there was one other time in history when this took place. It was in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 12. Um, David has had his great sin with Bathsheba. And Nathan the prophet comes to him being told of God to approach him. And Nathan tells him an elaborate story about a person, a poor person who has a sheep stolen from uh, a wealthy person. And David is incensed and he says, have him brought before me and we'll, we'll take his head off. You remember Nathan's, he's using a metaphor here. You remember what Nathan says to him? Ellie, what did he say? He said, you to man. He didn't do it with a high five or with a fist bump. But here, even a mocking Roman knows this is the man. (laughs) Here's what goes to your final blank. By the way, Pilate's words unwittingly tie this horrible and dramatic scene with prophecy. What I want to say to you as you continue your holy season study and thought is that the branch king will always be the man. He'll always be the man. Uh, My questions to you are the same questions I've been asking you for about, oh, seven or eight weeks now. Do you know this one? Do you know this Jesus? Don't you want to know him? I want to know him better and better every day. Because the more I get to know him, the more I want to be like him. And the more I like him, the more I can be help to you and to my world. Do you know this Jesus, the branch king Jesus, the one that that Jeremiah and Zechariah and Isaiah all talked about? And the one whom Pilate thought he was making fun of when he put him in a regal robe and said, 
This is the man. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Here's the good news. The best good news ever. (laughs) He has reached farther down to you than you have to reach up to him. All you have to do is reach out. All you've got to do is say, okay, Lord, I don't get all this. I don't understand it completely. But all I know, I give to you. All I am, I give to you. I've made a mess of it. Maybe I don't completely understand, but Lord, all I understand of me, I give to you. All I understand of you, I want for me. This is the man, the branch king, the one who's only, always, and forever righteous. I want to follow him. Go with me, will you? Go with me. Let's follow him together. Have a glorious Easter week, Holy Week. I'll see you in two weeks. And we'll bring breakfast, okay? See ya.